Okay, um, I want to try something uh, different today. I hope you'll be tolerant. I put it on the title. I hope people got it. Um, I agreed uh, earlier this week, I think probably Sunday or so, I agreed to give a Dafyo Mishir for a conference I was attending. Um, and I got totally sucked into it. Um, even though Dafyomi is as far normally from my uh, mode of learning as you get, um, I tried Dafyomi, I think, for the first time in 10th grade, where you get the sense of what kind of kid I was, because having done, I don't know, 17 Bada Gemara in my life, I was trying to write a book about how to learn Gemara. And my Rebbe said, you know, I really should learn some Gemara before you write a book about it. So I wanted you to Dafyomi. And I tried, and it was Shkalim, uh, which is this Yerushalmi that made it into the Bavli and Mo- to finish off Moed. And a month later, I was 11 lines in. I didn't understand any of them or something like that. Attempts at Dafyom, even though I have a strong you know, family connection in a sense, that uh, my grandfather was a student of Mayor Shapiro, who founded Dafyomi. I uh, also got to hear my father uh, tell me again this week one of his favorite stories of a late Y.U. Rosh Yeshiva who came over to him to complain to him that nobody learns anymore. They just, right? The proof of it was all the Dafyomi Shurim. So I have this ambivalence. Uh, but trying to prepare this year, I got into it um, really uh, sort of a rabbit hole, um, trying to think about what it would be like to prepare, even without doing any complicated halachic material or rishonim, just trying to figure out what it means to try and convey a Gemara in its own terms so that people actually understand it coming out of it. Is there a way to do it in which uh, for people with something other than total recall, you get something out of it? And uh, one of the things that was really very challenging to me was realizing how much I depended on visual techniques in both learning and teaching Gemara. And realizing, I don't know, because I write, uh, but realizing that most people listen, I, I get to wander around my house, right, where uh, my wife has Davyomi playing uh, often. And I, so I understand that most people listen to Davyomi Shurim. They don't, um, they, don't, they don't actually have the Gemara in front of them. So it's a really interesting, um, challenging thing to think about for me to try and figure out like how can you teach Gemara orally um, without right without showing it to people because I instinctively think about it visually, and then there's a separate issue like you know, if people aren't pure intellectuals, um, what do you what do they get out of Gemara being taught at such a uh, in that fashion, and another big pedagogic challenge for me is to figure out how can you teach a uh, Gemara in such a way, at that level, in such a way that as opposed to f- being a, an end, right, people say, aha, now I now, it, now I know this and right, I don't have to ask these questions anymore, that learning Gemara actually is a is a way to open questions as opposed to close them. So I thought, try tonight to see uh, what it would be like to give a Daf share. I do have a source sheet, uh, which I'll uh, share with you, but I'm going to work on the presumption that not everybody sees the source sheet uh, and that it's something I have to work on pedagogically to be able to convey complicated Gemara material without um, visual aids and see if that's at all doable. Uh, I am interested in knowing whether this is something that there would be interest in the shul, um, you know, maybe a trying with an experiment on a, uh, will we get to a shorter Masech at the end of Moed, which we should be some point um, after the summer, we should be do- at the end of Moed, there should be short Masech I'm also interested just in all in your feedback uh, as to what you got out of it, what I did wrong, what I did right, whether you listen to Dafyomi ordinarily or not. Um, okay, so the daf for today was uh, Yuma Dafyud Aleph Aleph, but in order to understand it, you have to go back to the very beginning of the Masechta. I'm going to share my screen now, but again, I'm going to assume that um, not all of you are um, 
are are reading. And if you, um, I'm gonna put the I'm gonna put the Makara in the chat also just in case. Um, but um, so you're welcome to follow along, but I'm not going to assume that. Um, okay, so the opening Mishnah of Masechet Yuma says that seven days before Yom Kippur, the Kohen Gadol was sequestered, I think that's the best word we have, uh, from his house into an, a, a, a space called the Lishkat Palhedrin. Par- Parhedrin, that's all we know about it. It's a space in the Beit HaMikdash, presumably a space with walls, uh, where the Kohen Gadol stays for all seven days. Okay, so we're on a tangent about that. We get to Daf Yud, where there's a Breita, it's introduced by Tanur Rabbanan, where the Breita states as a rule that all the chambers in Beit HaMikdash, Kol Halishkot Mikdash, didn't have a mezuzah, with the exception of that one place, the Lishkat Parhedrin, which has a mezuzah because the Kohen Gadol lives there for a week. Right? Whether it has a mezuzah just that week or all the time is not our, uh, is not our issue right now. But that's the claim that right that there's, there's only one mezuzah in the Beit Hamikdash, and that's on that office where the Kohen Gadol stays for that week. Um, right? It implies right that mezuzot right are limited to places of residence. Rabbi Huda says that can't be true because there were lots of other spaces in the Beit Hamikdash where people lived roughly the same way as the Kohen Gadol, like people who were guarding the house or things like that, and they didn't have mezuzah. So if they didn't have mezuzah, so obviously somebody just dwelling there is not enough. So Rabbi Huda, um, right, that answers that question. Um, right, if if the if the, if this office requires a mezuzah, all the others should also. We never get a good answer for the first position, but nonetheless we're left with that their position is that that one office required a mezuzah deoraita, and none of the others did. But Rabbi Huda says the the only the reason only that one required a mezuzah was because it was a, a derabanan. That the rabbis required you to put a mezuzah there. Okay, so what's the issue? So the Gemara um, raises the question after some back and forth um, among multiple opinions as to what the reason is. The Gemara ends up with this answer: that the dispute is what about involuntary living? The Kohen Gadol doesn't want to be there necessarily, right? It's it's a function of his office, so he's not there voluntarily. So the Gemara's conclusion at this point is that the people who think that the, the that office required a mezuzah deoraisa think that. Even if you're forced to live somewhere, it's still your home, so it requires a mezuzah. And Rabbi said, no, it's not. So it doesn't require a mezuzah. But then Rabbi comes up with this deeply ironic reason that it, it, in fact, has a mezuzah. What he says is, but if you don't put a mezuzah on the door, then people will realize that the Kohen Gadol is there involuntarily, and they're going to talk about him as if he's in prison. It's really bad for public morale for the uh, Kohen, for people to talk about the Kohen Gadol being in prison. Um, right? That creates, creates perhaps bad morale about the whole... The whole kapara ritual the Kohen Gadol is doing for everybody, uh, I think that's probably the best explanation. Although um, Steinzel Sal had a slightly different one, and Sarita says, "Well, how do we prevent that? We prevent that by putting a mezuzah on the door, and everybody knows, I guess, that you don't put a mezuzah on the door of a jail cell because people are there involuntarily. Um, so that creates the impression that the Kohen Gadol is there voluntarily, even though he's not. So it's always fun when you have these ironic, uh, ironic zerot that are intended to prevent people from thinking what really." It seems is the uh, it seems is the truth. Okay, now that um, that rule that uh, right that people shouldn't say that the kohen gadol is in jail uh, then generates a um, generates a second sugya which is also a little bit uh, has a little element of, uh, of ironic comedy in it. Um, so the gemara then asks, okay, so we know the machloket the right the, the rabbis hold that the that that office required the arayis, the rebuta holds it required it the rabbanon. Now we have another Breitah, and we're asked, which position held this Breitah? The Breitah says the following. 
all the gates, Kol Asherim Sheyusham, the gates in that section of the Beit Hamikdash. That's all that matters to us right now. Lo Mezuzah didn't have Mezuzah except for Shar Nikanor. Why Shar Nikanor? Menu Lishkat Parhedrin. So not only on the wall, on on the the doorpost of the of the Parhedrin office itself, but even on the gate that led to that section, there was a mezuzah. So the Gemara says, who could this be? Who could have said this? It can't be the, uh, let's say it's the rabbis, because it makes sense. If right, if you require, right, the Pasuk says, so houses, and for now we'll translate that as gates that lead to houses. Um, right? So if the if the space itself, the living space itself requires a mezuzah, so the gate that leads to it requires a mezuzah, so the Chachamim of the Tanakama of the of the of our Brayta who said that the Barhedron requires a mezuzah, so it makes sense that the gate should also. Rabbi Yudah said we only put a mezuzah on the door of the room itself, or the chamber itself, because we right as a drabana. So now the Gemara applies says he gufa he gufa If the the reason to put the um, to put the mezuzah on the door of the Barhedron is only as a rabbinic, but not nekam Should we? Impose another obligation on, it, and now we have to put a mezuzah on the on the outer on the outer gate because we have a mezuzah inside it. So this is a version of what I think we usually call the mixed dancing uh, question. I, many of you probably know they're all over the internet. There are charts that are explaining how the rabbis can prohibit anything in the world because you can create a long enough chain of circumstances that eventually anything, any action you engage in, can lead to mixed dancing. Right? So there has to be a limit to the number of steps removed you can have. Um, right, and that that's what the Gemara calls a rule that we don't we are not gozer xera xera. We don't impose multiple layers of prohibitions. So this is not prohibitions. It's right. It's obli- it's an obligation. You have to put the mezuzah on it. On it, it doesn't really have an infinite regress. There's only so many places you can put mezuzahs on the gate outside the entrance to the Hamikdash. Eventually, right, there's places that actually do require mezuzahs. Nonetheless, the Gemara uses this um, as uh, perhaps as a um, as a sort of play on I don't know play on words. Because it's also rabbinic and says, how can we impose a, a decree upon a decree? And the answer, of course, is as is is all every time the Gemara brings this up, is kula No, it's really just one decree, and it makes sense here for sure. Because if there's no mezuzah on the gate, but there is a mezuzah on the door, everyone will figure out that the mezuzah on the door is only rabbinic, and therefore they'll realize that the kohen gadol was actually there involuntarily. Um, so this is like a really interesting thing, Gemara. Like why? Why does Gemara always ask this question? Should we make exera? Right? Can we really make exera exera? When the Gemara has to know, as everybody else who's ever learned these Gemaras knows, that there's an answer, which is it's all one exera, and that if you study the history of it, it's pretty much clear that you always have the option of saying it's one exera. Some Achronim say this very explicitly. So it's always a matter of rabbinic discretion to say that whether it's, we treat this as one decree or we treat this as, and therefore fine, or we treat this as multiple steps. And the answer is that it's telling you something about the nature of rabbinic law, that you have to be conscious that you, that right, that because you have the power to forbid everything, you have to set rules on your own, right, on your, on the exercise of your own authority. And so you have to be honest and say at some point, right, I'm, ex- right, I'm really exceeding the reasonable bounds of authority when I prohibit A because it might lead to B because it might lead to C. Um, but it's only a mood, right? Because sometimes, right? Because these divisions are artificials. I think that's a very important thing to understand about halacha generally. That um, restrictions on rabbinic authority are generally self-imposed, and um, right. Then, and so when people point out and say it's arbitrary, it's not arbitrary. It's self-imposed, um, and it's left kind of discretionary and arbitrary are not the same thing. And also trying to tell students that. Um, 
right? Really, one of the best ways to restrain power is to be aware of how much power there is, and not just in your hands, but everyone else's hands. And even if you think you would exercise it responsibly, other people wouldn't. So you have to create a mood where if it turns out that lots of people have this power, then you have to come to a social contract where none of you exercise it. So the realization that you could, in fact, forbid everything because it leads to mixed dancing means that everybody else could forbid things because it leads to mixed dancing also. And they end up you, you end up forbidding a lot less, I think, because you realize that everything could be forbidden. Maybe, maybe I'm optimistic. That is my... Uh, that's my impression. That if you think that there's no risk that it'll spiral out of control, then you do whatever. Right? Then you do whatever is necessary. But if you understand that there are risks that the power uh, will, the power will be exercised uh, in, a, in a fashion that metastasizes it, you're much more um, likely not to use it. I think. I hope, I hope we train people to think that way. Okay. End of discussion of um, of that particular gate. But now that we've moved from, uh, right, we started from inside the the Beit HaMikdash and talking about whether whether that, that chamber is considered a residence. Then we moved on to the gate outside it, so now we're going to move on to other discussions of other gates in terms of mezuzah, and then we'll move back to other uh, other other kinds of, uh, of, spa- of spaces to see whether they're residences. So the Gemara quotes a Brayta, Taner Rabbanan. Taner Rabbanan introduces a Brayta that is not literarily uh, linked to the uh, to the Mishnah, or and it's also not from a Midrash Halacha, it's not from a collection that was organized by, uh, generally, Organized, it was organized as a commentary on Shas as opposed to as independent Talachic statements, even though it, it does um, it does quote a Pasuk. The Pasuk it quotes is our famous Pasuk, Tam, Amazot Betecha Uvish Arecha. Bish Arecha is in your gates, it's plural. So that we that teaches us that there's more than one kind of gate. And we treat this as a general rule, basically, that the, prem, the, the default is that it includes all kinds of gates. Right, it's a shari batim, gates of houses, gates of courtyards, gates of medinot, and gates of ayarot. So medina now we use as a state. That's not what it meant in uh, in rabbinic uh, Hebrew, but I don't know that I'm confident that I can tell you consistently what the difference between a medina and ear is. But two kinds of two kinds of uh, gates that are at the entrances to large populated, uh, very large populated spaces, not private property. All those yesh ben chovat makom. They all have. An obligation. Not clear to me whether the makom mean there means to God, or more likely that the place has an obligation to have a mezuzah place, mezuzah place there. Because again, we quote the pasuk again: So now that taken as a given that all these kinds of gates require um, require uh, mezuzah, although we'll see that that can become controversial a little bit uh, a little bit later. Um, so now Abayah says to Asafra, hang on a sec, there's, there are these gates in the town of Mechoza, which is a, a, a popular rabbinic city where um, it's, a majority, it's a majority of Jews, and there are these gates there. We'll find out more about these gates in a minute. So why, don't, right, why isn't there a mezuzah in Mechoza? Um, so he said to them, him, interestingly, those, right, those gates, that shar is not there uh, as an entrance to some place, but it's really there is is chizuk la'akra da'kuvehu davide. It's really there, they're really just uh, just architectural supports for what's built above them. Now, kuve, it's not clear what, what is built above them. Uh, the Davidson translation says a fort with turrets. Uh, you know, okay, could be. Um, there. It could be that it's really supposed to be kuche. Some manuscripts have that, which might refer to, uh, uh, to graveyards. Uh, it could be it's referring to something like the shops above the cardo. Um, right, you know, but for our purposes, probably something like guardhouse um, makes guardhouse makes sense. Um, 
and maybe it has turrets, maybe it doesn't. Um, and, but the point here is that you only require mezuzah when the when the gates are there actually um, as a um, as an entranceway, and not when they just happen to, when you're just building something as support for what happens uh, what happens above it. Uh, so long as the key space, right? If they're not an entrance, that means that really the key space is above them and not and not through the uh, and not through the uh, through the entrance. But um, it seems that you can still get into those places through that um, through that gate, even though they're fundamentally an architectural um, feature. So Abai, right? So um, Rav Safra says to uh, so Abayah says back to Rav Safra. There, right, but there is a person at least living in this space built above the gate, uh, right? He says isba dira asurin. The the prison warden lives there, which is why you get the idea that it must be some kind of guardhouse because if the prison warden lives there, probably the prisoners are in that space also. Somebody asked, why don't you require mezuzah for the prisoners? So we already learned that you don't require mezuzahs for uh, for people who are there involuntarily, um, right? And and um, he says. He'll tell me, but it's fundamentally not for that. It just has this one little chamber in there for the right for the prison warden. So maybe we still don't view it overall as uh, as a residence. So that's there's a rule about a bay knesset, right? A public call it a shul or call it a, like a public a public meeting hall, which knesset, which includes a space a space for the chazan then wasn't the cantor, but for whatever functionary um, was lived there to take care of the shul. So as long as there's one person who lives there, then the gate at the entrance requires a mezuzah. We learned that about the Beit HaMikdash, it seemed, right? Because of the one chamber of Kohen Gadol. So now we, would, now we should learn it about the uh, about the Kuvi in Mechoza, because it has a, an apartment for the prison warden. And it, we learned it about shuls that have an apartment for uh, for the Chazan Knesset. Or we'd say now, you know, perhaps we'll see um, for uh, a house, the house which has the mikvah, if there's an apartment for the... Um, for the mikvah, for the mikvah attended, attended above it, or I guess I say Tzchayimaz, right, which has adjoining apartments, all those sorts of issues. So therefore, we're back to our question, which is, why don't we have a uh, why don't we have a mezuzah on the gates of Mechoza? To which Abaye gives a, a fascinating answer. Abaye says, no, really, the gates of Mechoza should have had um, mezuzah on them, but we, don't, we didn't put them on them because it's dangerous. Um, because, right? And this, he seems to be saying this not specifically for Mechoza, maybe. That's the implication of the following sugya, but rather in general, even though in a majority Jewish city, the city the city gates should have a mezuzah, but it's dangerous because Rashi says people will think that uh, the Jews are you know putting amulets on the doorway and they're therefore they're engaging in witchcraft. Um, right? So if you know that if you're out uh, doing eruv repair, that sometimes you have to explain to people why you are um, why you are doing these things, and that can raise really interesting conversations. So people think about why are you building an imaginary wall around our city? Uh, sometimes it gets confusing. I think the headline in Palo Alto is the one I always I love quoting: uh, "Jews by city build wall." Um, so you can understand, right? Baruch Hashem, we live in a place where we can do all sorts of things, and and it's not we don't see it as a danger for there to be for Jews to be engaged in. Not only you know, have public religious symbols and to be engaged in working with those public religious symbols, but Abai seems to think that it was dangerous in Mechoza, and the Gemara seems to think that maybe this is generalizable to uh, other kinds of cities. Okay, so how do we know this? Um, so the Gemara quotes a Brighta, but it's not going to be clear whether the proof here is from the beginning of the Brighta or the end. So here's the Brighta. So a mezuzah on a private space should be checked twice a Shavuot, which means twice every seven years. That you all know. 
Veshel Rabim, but a mezuzah belonging to the public, Pa'amayim Bayovil, it only gets checked twice every 50 years. So you might think that was that's also because it's too dangerous to check it more often, but then you probably shouldn't check it at all. Um, that's right. But Rashi gives a very interesting explanation. Rashi says, Kol devar shu shel rabim, everything which is a matter of uh, public work, ain la you shouldn't impose a severe workload on communal needs. Shim titrach, because if you make it if you make it too much of a burden, you hate kol echado mir yasu everybody. Everybody tries to walk to walk away and claim it's somebody else's responsibility, uh, but the implication is that as long as you, as it, if it's just checking it, a little, doing it once in a while, then everybody runs to do it because there's a certain prestige or satisfaction in, do, in engaging public work. So it's a very interesting psychological theory Rashi has that when you have that you should try and divide up public burdens, right? You shouldn't try and get and not impose them at all because perhaps people don't get anything out of them, but you should try not to make them too heavy because. There's a tipping point where people stop saying, "Oh, great, I get to do this," and start saying instead, "Why doesn't that person do it instead of me?" Um, either way, it should point out that Rashi doesn't seem to think it's a high communal priority because if it were, you could just pay somebody to do it, and then this issue wouldn't come along at all. But these are these are the kind of things that um, either Rashi thinks that in principle it's better to have volunteers do them, uh, or Rashi thinks that um, you know you can, if you pay for every if you professionalize everything. Um, then the community breaks down. I think it makes sense for in Rashi's world to say, you know what, you want to create, and this is a right, ongoing sociology, you want to create enough demands on the community, enough enough ways in which people can contribute that everybody can feel that they're contributing, and that makes them feel more a member of the community, more invested in the community because they are uh, they're doing things for it. We don't want to make it too much to the point where people start wondering whether the, whether the burden is being carried uh, is being divided unfairly. And they start looking for other people to take their turn. I think that probably still stands. Okay, so that's probably irrelevant to the question of the gates of Mechoza. And now we get to the part that is relevant. Be'amar Rabbi Huda. Rabbi Huda says a story which, in this explanation, is tangential. Maseb Artavin Echad. There's a story about an Artavin. We know nothing about that. I know of what an Artavin is. Well, I imagine that Latin people have done something with it. Uh, all we know about him is Shayabozek Mizuzot Peshuk Elion Shelzipori. Whatever an Artavin was, apparently part of it was checking Mizuzos. Uh, checking public mezuzos, and he was found by a, a, some kind of Roman official. The terms for Roman officials, uh, at least by the time they make it to the Vilna Shas, are often not reliable. So some kind of Roman official. And he find him a thousand zoos for um, for checking the mezuzos at Sipori, presumably because he thought he was violating a prohibition against public, uh, public witchcraft. So, okay. Sakana becomes Sakana for money as opposed to Sakana to your body, or maybe we think that he had to give him a thousand sous because otherwise he was, um, otherwise he was, um, he was going right. He was going to threaten him physically. Um, maybe the risk is for those of you who you know, a dated joke, right? That the risk is that they'll think that you used improper Latin grammar. Okay. Um, okay. So the Gemara says, "Hang on a sec. How could that story be true?" Rabbi said that people, the shluchei mitzvah, literally we use as, as agents of mitzvah, but generally understood, right? Generally, we don't impose the agency as, in the sense of being someone else's agent as critical. It's somebody who is not not necessarily engaged directly in the mitzvah, but someone who is in the process of leading, uh, in a process leading to a mitzvah. And Rabbi said that you don't get injured, you, know, you don't get damaged as re- in that process. So how could, um, so how could this this kazdor have found uh, find somebody? A thousand zuz for being engaged in a mitzvah of mezuzah checking. So we might answer that mezuzah checking per se is not really a mitzvah. 
the mitzvah is already done, you're just making sure that it's been done. Um, but this is an important Gemara in a lot of ways. Um, probably many of you know the story of Elisha ben Avuya becoming a heretic. Um, is because there are all these mitzvot that the Torah specifically reward says about long life, and he sees the kid at his father's command climbing right climbing the tree to be mishalech etzakan. So there's kibud avaim and the shiloh hakain, and yet he falls in he, he falls to his death, and so Elisha ben Avuya becomes a heretic. Um, and there too, the question is, but isn't the, you know, forget all the promises in the Torah? What about Rabbi Lazar? So this is you know, might be one of like the key ways to distinguish um, modern orthodoxy and Haredi Judaism in some ways is how likely you are to take this as a statement of fact that should actually yield policy. Um, so the Gemara right, uh, so the Gemara says the answer here as to why how we, how it was is hezeka shani where there where the damage is fixed you know really often it says the manuscripts here also shkiach where it's probable, um, right? Meaning that you can't take risks on the on the basis of this statement of Rabbi Lazar. Okay, but you can't take risks even without this statement of Rabbi, uh, Rabbi Lazar. So the issue, like, what does Rabbi Lazar's statement, um, what does Rabbi Lazar's statement really change if you can't take if you can't right if you can't take risks based on it? So I think that in modern orthodoxy we have a strong tendency to really really minimize. The um, the effect of this, so we, you know, mostly what we say is less than less that it'll protect you than that we have perhaps a slightly higher threshold of risk when the purpose is valuable. Whereas you can find, I think, in Marcharidi communities, like very, I think you know, one of my uh, one of my nephews wrote a long disquisition about this. Um, you know, really, what counts as shchiachezeka as opposed to what counts as not shchiachezeka? So normally we have we have shomer psaim hashem, which is our threshold for what kind of risks you can take. But when it comes to a mitzvah, the threshold is raised slightly higher, but not so high as Bikvi Hezeka. Okay, right? That might also be, right? Certainly, that's a, per, a reasonable way of reading the text. Um, but it's a you know, whole interesting question about the extent to which we see, right? We're, we're governed by the answer to Lushan of Leah that you can't rely on on anything religious directly impacting this world, and to what extent you think otherwise. I think is a really good proof that you can't rely on it because. Uh, when God commands Shmuel to go anoint um, Shaul, even before uh, right, anoint David, even while Shaul is Shaul is still alive and, and anointed as monarch, so Shmuel says to him, How could I possibly go anoint David? Shaul will hear me will, will hear and kill me. So God says to him, take a take an animal with you and and pretend right that you're there just to sacrifice it. So if if you're carrying out God's command directly, right. Um, so that certainly is a mitzvah. We could try and do lumbus and say no, it's a haras shah. But it sounds like you know, that the logic of Rabbi Lezer is obviously that you're trying to fulfill God's will and not a, a specific din in carrying out uh, carrying out halacha. Um, and God tells when Shmuel says, but it's dangerous. God doesn't tell Shmuel, but the Gemara says shluchim mitzvah nizak, and he says, okay, take precautions. So that tells you that you shouldn't uh, right that in cases where you can reasonably expect that something bad will happen. Even if you're doing a mitzvah, you should, uh, right? You have to take precautions. Okay. Um, so that's why, in the end, the gates of Mechoza, or that particular area of the gate of Mechoza, didn't have a mezuzah, was because at least in Mechoza, it was dangerous to put a mezuzah on public um, space. Okay, that finishes our discussion of gates, and now we move on to houses. Um, so Rav Kahana taught uh, before Rabbi Huda um, that a base hatevin, right, a granary, and a base habakar, and a, a, a cattle. Something rather like they'll have a refit of a car, so, right? A barn 
the base of Eitzim, and a woodshed, a base of Tzarot, the storehouses for various, uh, Rashi says, wine, oil, or, or grains, um, where nobody lives. Terim and Hamazazah, so they are, um, right, they're exempt from Mezuzah. Mipnei sh'anashim ne'otot pehen. So there are two questions, right? Mipnei sh'anashim ne'otot pehen implies that otherwise they wouldn't require Mezuzah. So why do they require Mezuzah? Is that really a bayit? Is a woodshed really a house? So the answer seems to be yes, because it's, right, outbuildings are part of the, the residential complex. But these are different because nashim ne'otot pehen. So what does ne'otot pehen mean? So Rav Kahana commented on his own bright day, so what I meant by Neotot there was Rochatzot, right? It means they get, they make use of it, they get Hanoah from it. It means that they, that, that, that this was taken as a private space to shower in. Um, and that means that it, that it's a place where people stand around unclothed. There's not, I don't think it has anything to do with women specifically. It has to do with the pragmatics that women were more likely to seek privacy, I guess. Um, and therefore, at places where people wander around without clothes, um, are not places where it's appropriate to put a mezuzah. Okay, so Narabiyuda says, what sounds to me like what you're saying is, right, as we just said, Tama, the Ruchatzos, the reason they don't require mezuzahs is because the, um, is because the women are taking showers there, Hastama, but ordinarily, Chayavin, right, ordinarily all these outbuildings would require a mezuzah. Vatania, but we have a Brighto which says, so we have to keep track, there are going to be at least four Brighto in play at the end of this. So this, first there's the Brighto of Kahana teaches, which we just learned, which says that they all Right, that they that they they all do have mezuzah, except for the ones that women take showers in, and now we have a statement that just says that cattle barns refit bakar p'turab mezuzah. So it implies that outbuildings, uh, we're assuming that there's no difference among the, among the outbuildings right now. It doesn't matter whether it's a woodshed or a cattle barn, do require mezuzah. Uh, Sarbita so says your brighta must be wrong. Sarbita so says you know what you misunderstood. You said mipneishanashim neotot ben. It's because the women get use out of them, and so therefore you constructed a use that you thought would prevent them from having a mezuzah. But I think the correct meaning of neotot is what do they use it for? Mitkashtot. They adorn themselves. Rashi says that it means that they perfume themselves. Uh, I guess you need a space where the aroma doesn't carry, but you don't need that much light. Maybe that's where Rashi thinks that that's a good, that outbuildings are a good place to put on uh, perfume. And therefore he says, really what it said was, uh, right, it didn't say because the women do it, really what it said was vachikatani, Right, that all these outbuildings don't require mezuzah, no matter what, even even if women use them for some purposes, they're still outbuildings and they're not actually part of your part of your home. So as a basic machloket uh, between Rav Kahana and Rav Yehuda, Rav Kahana thinks that all these outbuildings require mezuzah, except um, if except if they're used for purposes that prevent the mezuzah, and Rav Yehuda thinks that none of, that none of them require a mezuzah whatsoever, um, and they each. They, eat, they argue about the meaning of the first price quoted, but there is one bright to the left which says clearly, clearly there's no way to avoid it that outbuildings don't require a mezuzah no matter what. Okay, so now Rav Kahana turns to Rabbi Huda and says, hang on a sec, you just quote, you quoted a bright to me which said that these outbuildings, especially cattle barns, don't require a mezuzah. Is that really true? Do you really mean that, uh, that outbuildings that women... Um, that women uh, take that women uh, perfume themselves in right don't require mezuzah. But I learned in a brayta, and here's the brayta. The brayta says a cattle cattle barn refit by karp turab in a mezuzah is really exempt from mezuzah. But the shanashim mitkashtotba, but the ones in which women uh, perfume themselves in chayevim mezuzah are required in mezuzah. So you're wrong, right? That we have a brayta, we have a brayta that says explicitly that at least in the case where they do use it, right? I think that they all require mezuzah. 
you think it never required mezuzot, and you had one brighta supporting you, but I have a brighta supporting me at least halfway. That says if women use them, they do require mezuzah. So, elamayit lach lememar, so what are you going to have to say? You're going to have to say that the, that, that the case of barns which women do use is a tanayi, kashto tanayi, that's the machlokas tanaim. Um, so that, so once you have, so you already have to admit that you, the bright that you taught is not a collective position. It supports the first price that you quoted to attack me, but it doesn't agree with the bright that I just quoted to attack you. So once we admit that there's a tenetic dispute about this, so you know what? I'm going to claim, sorry, so you claimed there's a, there's a dispute about the case where the women adorn themselves. I'm going to tell you that it's always a dispute. So you'll tell me, how, how do you know that? Right, how do you how do you know that there's a dispute? Maybe the most extreme position is that if women use them for it, they require mezuzot. The answer is, well, I have a brayta myself. The brayta learns from betecha. So what does betecha mean? So it means betecha miyuchad lach. It has to be a house that is set aside for set aside for you for human beings, excluding all the cases we have, right? A granary, granary and cattle thing, and a betaytzim in a woodshed and a and uh, at a storehouse. All those are exempt from mezuzah, but Brisa says, but some people say they are obligated. So they're, they're, I'm home free. It turns out that there is a tenetic dispute, uh, even in the case where just regular outbuildings, which have no human use at all. Um, and you interpreted the Brisa to support your position. I interpret the Brisa to support my position. It doesn't really make much difference because both positions exist. Um, and his Brisa continues, really they said, Beta Kisei, which is a toilet, Beta Bursiki, and a tannery, Beta Merchatz, or a, uh, a public bath, Beta Tvila, and uh, a, a mikveh a uh, house without, without an attached apartment. And not really our mikveh houses, probably because we're not talking about ones with waiting rooms and things like that, but a, a place where people are, con- in, where in every space people are wandering around unclothed. So that's right, that's really. A requote of the original Brayta that um, that Rav that Rav Kahana cited. So the Gemara is going to say, you know what? It turns out that the way we've worked it out, that this last Brayta um, we don't right, we, has to be interpreted. Everybody has to interpret it their own way, also because one of them has to right because um, we have to turn it, right, to interpret it in such a way that there's a dispute about uh, the cases. There's that there's a there's at least a dispute about all the cases you want. The way we have it right now is. Everybody agrees. There's no way around it. There's a dispute about the case where the outbuildings are really used, and pretty much it seems like there's a consensus that there's no dispute about a case in which they're used for things that would make them as inappropriate. What we haven't proven yet is that there's a, is that there's a dispute about the case in uh, in which in which they have no there are no human beings going into them either for sh- for showers or for adornment. So it turns out that each of them is going to read a bright uh, their way. Rav Kahana metaretz So Rav Kahana is going to read the Brayta saying that there that there is an argument about the ordinary case because he needs there to be a position that you're chayiv in mezuzah even if it's just an outbuilding. Rav Yudah is going to explain that no, the argument in that case is only talking about where they adorn themselves. Avastama divriya kol patur. But everybody's going to agree that outbuildings ordinarily don't require mezuzah. Okay, um, so we're going to present each of right each of them are going to reread the Brayta their way. Right, so Rav Kahana is going to read the Brayta as saying. Your house, meaning excluding a granary and all those things, if they right when they have no other use, and some people think that they're obligated obligated even when they have no other use, and everyone's going to agree. Um, everyone's going to agree that if you go that if you um, if if you if people are taking showers in it, you don't do it. 
Uh, the Gemara says, hang on a sec, but if to read it that way, that it's talking about showers, but there was a case actually it, which said explicitly merchat, um, so why do you need two cases talking about showers? So the answer, which is very reasonable, is if so, that's the same case as the merchat. So the Gemara says, no, you know what, it really makes sense, there's a difference between a public shower, merchat to rabim, and merchat to yachid, and a private shower, which is what we're talking about here, an outbuilding in someone's private house, where, uh, right, where uh, women go to take showers, because I might have thought, there is a, much more in a public bathhouse, aside from the aside from the um, from the unclothedness, even if there's a space where it, there's a waiting room, but it has a miasma about it. Um, but a private bathhouse, you know, that people take showers in sometimes, but that doesn't have a constant, a constant miasma, which makes it an undignified space. Um, and also, right, it's just the whole atmosphere is different. Um, so I might think that that was that was a mezuzah. So that's why the bright has to teach us um, both cases. Fine. Um, but now, right? So now the Gemara goes. Sarfkana's explanation is fine, right? That there's a dispute about the case. Um, there's a dispute about the case where uh, it's not used for any. It's not used for anything. But everyone agrees that there's no mezuzah if um, there's no mezuzah if you, if the women take showers there. And presumably the same dispute applies as if women adorn themselves there. Rabbi Yehuda says that the the case which they argue about is even the case of which where they adorn themselves but everybody agrees that if that if the outbuildings are only used for their normal use what we call stam right unqualified that they don't require mezuzah and therefore he reads the second half of it to say that even though right the way he read the original bright that even though women adorn themselves in it they're exempt from they're exempt from mezuzah so that's his presentation in which he says there's right he has, so far, he has no bright though which indicates, uh, in his reading, right? There's no bright though which says explicitly that in an ordinary case where just regular outbuildings require mezuzah, Rav Kahana, ha, Rav Kahana has reads two bright though as saying that he reads the first bright as uh, right as saying that the only reason they don't require mezuzah is because women take showers in them, and the same as the second bright though. says, but that's not enough. So the Gemara says, yeah, that's not enough. But the truth is, there's another bright though which does prove. That uh, which does prove that Rav Khan is right, that there was a Tana who said that all outbuildings require mezuzah. The Gemara says, Rabbi Huda, Stama Kol Patur. Is it really true that everybody agrees that uh, outbuild that um, that there's no of mezuzah for outbuildings? We have a Brita. Okay, so the relevant part of the Brita is the first part. The Brita says, Bisharecha. What, what does that mean? It doesn't matter whether it is Sharei Batim, Red Gate. Houses for uh, gates for houses or for courtyards or Medinot Nayarot. We have that again, but here's the key thing if there was in, or if it's a refit, if it's a barn, Vilulina, or if it's a chicken coop, or Madbain, or granaries, right? All those things, right? Or or wine wine storehouses or oil storehouses, all those are Chayav Mezuzah. Okay, so this Brighta, the Gemara says, even though Rav Kahana didn't quote it, we have a Brighta, and so there's no way out of it. There's a there's a tentative dispute about regular outbuildings, there's a tentative dispute about outbuildings that have occasional human use. And, but probably there's no dispute uh, about cases where about outbuildings that are used as showers, although even then you could read a text as a way to, to read a, a dispute even there. Having quoted this Brita, the Gemara then goes on to quote a um, to quote to continue the rest of the Brita. And the rest of the Brita is going to be saying things you might have thought were excluded from mezuzah, uh, or th- things you might have thought were included in mezuzah, but we're going to exclude them. All right, so here's how we do it. Right, so. Um, I might think you include even a Beit Shar, which is not the 
right, which is a sort of an anteroom built outside the gate of a courtyard. So I think that requires a mezuzah or a chsadra, just some kind of porch or mere peset that's clearer. Right? There's a dispute whether it's a be- whether it's a beit char li'achsadra or achsadra is a separate space, or a mere peset is kind of like if you have those motels with multiple stories, all the entrances are outside, so there's a balcony which uh, outside which leads to the entrances to the um, to the individual rooms. So if you have a an archway, if you have a if you have a gate leading to that that uh, parapet that runs around. So that is not actually that that is not actually the entrance to the residences. It's just right. It's not it's not treated as a public courtyard. That's just right. That's just a uh, an entrance to a, to a neutral space. So that so I might thought that thought that requires mezuzah. No, Talmud Lamer Bayit. That's right. That's not attached to the house. Just like the house has to be miuchad ladira. It has to be a place where people actually reside. So these are not places where people people are not considered to be living on that porch. It might very well depend on what the social use of that porch is, whether it's just a space you can walk to, or whether you put chairs out on it. Once you put chairs on it, so then it probably becomes a miuchad ladira, and that has implications for other purposes as well. I might think you should include toilets, af beta kise, beta bursiki, tanneries, right, all those cases we saw before, right, shower, shower, uh, shower, bathhouses and uh, mikvahs. Tamalamar bayit. So here, here it frames it as ma bayit he kavod, just like a house which is done for kavod. So what does it mean a house is done for kavod? Um, so you could say that it's um, it's a house it's built for dignified purposes, and um, and somehow these are not obviously a toilet is not a dignified purpose. But why isn't a tannery a dignified purpose? So that's a little bit odd. Um, I don't really understand what the the Steinzel's translation had that they honor the person. I don't really understand it at all. But the best I can do is dignified use. If it's not intended for dignified use, then it right then it doesn't require mezuzah. And then we go back to our original issue. I might, I might have thought that all the rooms in the Beit HaMikdash required a mezuzah. Talmud Lomar Bayit, so that we have we have uh, the word uh, the word house. The word house means just like an ordinary house is not sanctified. Right. So therefore, the only things that require mezuzah are things that are also unsanctified. Yatsu Elishain Kodesh, as opposed to the things on the temple which are sanctified. We'll see that that's a matter actually of dispute in a, a, some dispute in a moment. Okay, we finished our tangent now, quoting with apparent tangent, although we'll see that associatively, quoting the end of this bright day is what leads to the next rest of the sugya. We go back to saying to Yufta that we we originally interpreted Rabbi Huda as saying that there's no dispute about outbuildings in a uh, which aren't used for human purposes, and that was proved to be wrong. Okay. Um, now we're going to go. Yes. Okay. Now we're going to go back to uh, another to an, a separate issue about um, gates requiring a mezuzah. So Rashmul Bar Yehuda Tani Rashmul Bar Yehuda Kamei Rava. So Rashmul Bar Yehuda teaches in front of Rava there are six gates that are listed that are exempt from mezuzah, and he lists seven. Right? They're, they're familiar ones. Right? There's the, there's the the granary and the uh, and the cattle barn and the woodshed and the storehouse, and he lists something new, which is Shar. Um, the, the, a gate built in the form of the Medeans, Medeans, whatever you write, Medeans, however you pronounce it, M-E-D-E-A-N-S, um, which Rashi tells us helpfully, we'll see, which is right, that they, they built uh, rounded, rounded gates as opposed to square gates. So, you, they, so they don't have the classic form of mezuzot where they have doorposts and a, and, and a lintel. Veshar she'en makura, or things which have no top at all. Veshar she'en a gavo asara, or 
if the gate doesn't reach the height of, of uh, 10 tvachim, right, with the 30, 30 or 40 inches to be a halachically significant uh, doorway. So, but that's seven cases. So Amarle, so Rabbi says, that was seven. You, you started with six, then you said seven. So he says, I, I started with six because I put the seventh one in, even though it's controversial, right? Shara Madai, Tanoihi. The Medein gate is there's a tentative dispute about whether it requires a mezuzah or not, because we have a brighta which says kippa, right? A kippa can be translated as a dome, but it really just means a rounded, uh, a rounded arch. Um, and we could dis- discuss whether it'd be different if it was rounded or, uh, or, or if it came to a point. Remeir mechayev mezuzah. Remeir requires a mezuzah. Um, and then we get to the point which generates the next argument: shavin shem yesh biragla asara shechayev mezuzah. So everybody agrees that if there's a right, if the uh, the doors, sorry, if the, if if the arch is built on top of doorposts that are of already ten tefachim high, so even though what's built on top of them is an arch, right, we right we imagine the arch. Uh, right, we don't really care that the whether the the lintel is straight. All we care about is that there's something which is on top of of, of mezuzah A and on top of mezuzah B and is connect, connected above the heights of uh, of each end. Okay, now the bias says we should really qualify that. Really, really, he says everybody agrees that um, to form it for, that if you have an archway that that has no doorposts, that has no doorposts at all, all right? It's just an arch from the beginning, so that doesn't count. And everybody agrees that if it never reaches the height of ten tefachim, no matter right, no matter how how straight the doorposts, uh, even though the doorposts are at least three tefachim high, that doesn't count. What they argue about is. Some, right, is if the archway at its height, there's a space that gets you to ten tefachim, and on each side, uh, and on each side there are uh, there are door there are door there are doorposts at least three tefachim high, and those three tefachim high doorposts are at least four tefachim apart. So you have a three tefach high, like a ten to twelve inch high normal doorway, right, where it has the the an wide wide enough to be wide enough to be a doorway, and then you above that, right? You get to the right height of ten tefachim, but it's no longer wide enough. Um, so, but you have enough materials, right? So, as, as opposed to the 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 dome or the the arch being built um, of materials that just surround the open space, actually, what you have is let's treat it as a rectangle with the space of the archway empty in the middle. So, you could just cut away material, and you would get an arch. You would get an, a doorway of the proper size. So the mayor says that we cut away the doorway, the doorway, right? As long as it's as long as it gets three tefachim high enough, and if you cut away material, you would get you would get a ten tefach high by four tefach uh, wide doorway. That counts as a door, and the chachamim say no, uh, it doesn't. So that's the case they argue. They argue they argue about that um, intermediate intermediate case. It's very rare, I think, uh, in the contemporary world that we have uh, arches that are that low. Um, but sometimes on ground floors, I guess, with this really clever architecture, um, and it gets more complicated. This if it's much wider, um, right? But so I'm, I'm not doing um, doing sakums as at all. Um, yeah, but you could treat it as like the, the that's the, the real. If you can carve out an open space um, which is surrounded in some way, which is ten, which is ten, by, which is a ten by four, then you're probably okay. Any space which is less than that becomes halakhically complicated. Okay, uh, one more. One more brayta about houses and mezuzot. Um, right, we have a brayta which says that a beta knesset and a beta isha, a house owned by a woman, or a beta shutfin, or a house owned by uh, 
owned by partners is chayevet b'mezuzah, is obligated mezuzah. So the Gemara says, da, right, pshita, the boy's best translate is da. So the Gemara right. so here we're going to have a couple, two sugyot that have this form. We're going to quote a breita. We're going to say that's too obvious to bother saying. And we're going to tell you what we might have thought, which turns out to be wrong. But then we'll find out the next sugya that not so wrong. So here we have Breita, which says that shuls are chayav mezuzah, as are houses owned by women and partners. Why would I have thought not? Because the Pasuk says, Beitecha, and that is somehow underst- right, understood to be masculine, always an issue, trying to figure out when Midrash Halacha treats the biblical Hebrew neuter as, as neuter and when it treats it as masculine. So I might think not a house belonging to her, it has to be owned by a man. Beitecha, I might think it has to be owned by someone singular, and below Batehem, and not house, not a house owned by plural people, Kamash Milan, we learned that out in the end. Right, in the end, that's wrong. So then the Gemara says, ah, why not? Right. Once you have a really cool, a really cool pasuk teaching you not houses owned by women, not not houses owned by partners, uh, why not say it's true? So the Gemara says um, the reason that is the Torah tells you the purpose of this is leman. Leman is a purpose. Your right? So for the sake of yours and your descendants' um, lives, lives, right, a days, life, days of life being extended. Uh, so, so the Gemara says, what and what? And women and partners don't require uh, don't require life. That's absurd. So obviously, in mezuzah applies equally to houses owned whether by men or by uh, right or by um, or by women or by individual men or by partners. But that doesn't really answer the question. We'll note for now. What about shuls? Shuls don't really have owners, so you can't make the argument. What So so the shuls are left in abeyance right now. And the Gemara's temporary answer is, so, okay, if it doesn't exclude women, it doesn't exclude uh, partnerships, uh, what does it exclude? So I might have thought it excluded shuls, but that Gemara doesn't say that. The Gemara says, Ela beitecha lamali, kidurava, damarava, because Rava said something, we have to figure out how seriously we take this as midrash halacha. Derech biatcha, beitecha is really a pun, you should read it as biatcha, right? The way in which you come in, and that's how we learn that, right, since people start, most people, right, obviously, right here we are being very... Um, very uh, uh, I'm sure the word for right for right for right hand is uh, centric, right? Most people when they start walking they move the right foot first. Therefore, the mezuzah should be on the right side as you walk in. Okay, it say the word beitecha to teach you derech beatcha sounds more like an asmachta than a drasha, but what can we do? Uh, right, we're really left with the case that it turns out that we have a, a reasonable basis for excluding shuls, and we haven't really understood why that is wrong. Okay, another brayta. Which uh, introduces another halacha and says the same three places: a shul, a beit haknesset, a beit hashutafin, and a house owned by partners, a beit haisha, and a house owned by women. Metamin binagayim, they can acquire tzarat habayit, assuming there is such a thing as tzarat habayit in practice, which we talked about a few weeks ago. The Gemara says again, pshita da. Why would I have thought not? So the answer is we have a pasuk just like beitecha uva asher lo habayit by house by house nigayim. It says that the one to whom the house belong comes. Okay, so I might have thought that meant lo v'lo la, right? It meant belongs to him and not to her. Lo v'lo lahen, it belongs to him and not to them. So this is wrong. So the Gemara says the same thing. Ve'im hachiname, I might think, why isn't that right? So the Gemara answer says, ve'veis eretz achuzatchem, that they have another part, the, 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 the passage before it said that negat saras applies to, all, to the house of the land of your homestead, which we assume means no matter who among you owns it. Okay, so then the Gemara says, El lo lamali, so why do we have the word lo? And the answer is, here again, we have something that doesn't seem quite halachic. 
is telling you why do you get negei batim is mishi miached veitolo. It's only people who are selfish about their house who keep it to themselves. Meaning she never would sell hashil kelav. He doesn't want to. He doesn't want to lend his um, his his um, utensils to his neighbor. Ve'omer she'en lo, and he says I don't have any. And now the nega comes, and you have to empty out your house. So when God forces, when the halacha forces him to empty his house because the, of the nega, so that's right. So God exposes him. So it's midak nega midah. It's poetic justice. Prat Right. So, but you wouldn't get nega batim if you um, if you lend your, your utensils to others. So does that mean halachically that the coin when somebody comes to me and says kenega nirali bebayit that it looks like there's a nega the coin goes and asks all the neighbors, did this person, does this person lend their stuff to you or not? So again, hard to know how seriously to take it halachically. And again, if we look at the sugya, we say, hang on a sec, you explained why I might have thought that that a that the house of partners is excluded, and I might and why the house uh, the, the house owned by a woman is excluded, and we said that was wrong, but you didn't really come with a good reason as to what is excluded by the word lo, and there's a candidate in the bright, which is Beit HaKneset. So what do we think? Do shuls get uh, negatserat or not? So that leads us to the. We had one bright that which said it does, right? It, right. So Gemara says, right. So, but Gemara says, Uveta Knesset mimetame binagayim. So is it really true that a Beit Knesset does get nagayim? Um, but we have a bright that which says, Yachol, right? There's that word again. I might have thought that Shuls and Batei Midrash get negatsaras. Talmud Lomar Ravash or Lohabayit Mishim Yuchad Lo Yatsu Elushem Yuchadin Lo. Right. So it turns out that I would write that there is a good drasha. To exclude shuls, so how could right? So now we have dueling brightot. Uh, what should it be? How do we resolve this? How do we resolve these dueling brightot? Do shuls and batei midrash get negatsrat or not? So the Gemara answers, look, Asher, no problem. One position is Remeir, and one position is Rabbanan. How do we know that they argue about this? Because we have a brightah which has the exact same dispute about um, about mezuzot, which is presumably based on the issue of whether of whether Beitecha ends up excluding shuls or not. Right, so we say that we saw already that if it has a dwelling place for the right for for the chazan, then everybody agrees it requires mezuzah. But if it's just a shul, so just like the mayor says it's obligated mezuzah, he thinks it can get batim, and just as the chacham say that it's not obligated in mezuzah, they would say you can't get batim. And then the gemara says logically, of course, there are other ways we can resolve it. We can say that it's both the rabbis. But one of them is talking about a case where it has a, a house for the Chazana Knesset. That's presumably the Breitah, which doesn't follow it up by saying, but if it, right, but uh, but if it has no no dwelling place, and the other one, but the one which has no such qualification is talking about a case where there is a dwelling place, and that's why it's Chayev. Or I could say they both, neither of them, neither of them, this is a really interesting one, neither of them uh, have dwelling places in them, but it makes a difference whether, right, uh, there's a difference between shuls in large cities and shuls in small cities. So that's a really interesting claim. What does that mean? Why should that make a difference? So the answer Rashi says is that um, shuls in large cities do not have defined owners because anybody, really shuls in large cities belong to everybody because everybody comes in and davens there. So they're treated as really undifferentiated property. And at least we learn from from Asher Lohabayit and from Betecha that there has to have some kind of defined ownership. But shul, but uh, but shuls in small towns, they belong. They're, right, they're like partnership-owned things. They belong to they belong to the people of the town uh, who daven there, and therefore they are chayiv mezuzah, and they do um, and they do 
Um, and they do, and they do get negayim. So the last two answers of the Gemara makes it right. The first answer of the Gemara is it's machlokit. The second answer of the Gemara is that it right, that it all depends on whether there's a house in it or not. If there's no house in it, uh, everyone agrees that it doesn't. If there's no residence. Everyone agrees there's no mezuzah. If there is, everyone agrees there is. And the last one is it really depends whether there's defined owners or not. It's really interesting to think about uh, whether the Yisrael Sharon for these purposes is a big is a big city shul that belongs to the world or a small town shul. It only belongs to the people um, of the city. Okay, then the Gemara says, "Hang on a second. Is it really true that um, shuls in big cities cannot cannot be uh, cannot cannot uh, require negayim?" But we have a brayta which says, "Achuzatchem." It says, "Base eretz achuzatchem" means that only property that can be defined as a homestead can acquire negayim. But Yerushalayim doesn't become tamei negayim. The Rebbe says, "I didn't hear that about Yerushalayim." I heard it about the Makom the Makom HaMikdash, but the suggestion of Yehuda says, right, I only heard about the Makom HaMikdash means that, right, so the rabbis thought Yerushalayim was exceptional. Rabbi Yehuda says, no, even Yerushalayim is not exceptional. It's only the Mikdash, but every, Rabbi Yehuda thinks that the other shuls in Yerushalayim can get Nagaim, and presumably the rabbis thought that the shuls in other cities could get Nagaim. So obviously we don't use the word, um, we don't use the word Asherlohabayit to exclude shuls. So how can you claim that shuls are excluded according to some positions the way we answered it before. So the um so the Gemara answers really Rabbi uh, Rabbi really said said not an Shulamati Mikom Mikdash Bilvad, really Rabbi Huda said is Anilo Shamati Ella Mikom Mikudash Bilvad. What I said really was that um that the only place which which can't get Nagaim is the beta is the beta mikdash. Now we've run full circle. The opening discussion on the daf or as the introduction to the daf was whether any place in the Beit Hamikdash required a required a mezuzah. The end discussion is whether any place in the, uh, is a statement that, that everybody agrees that you cannot get negaim in the uh, in the Beit Hamikdash. I think Maranis says that the dispute about Yerushalayim generally is that the Tanakama held that Yerushalayim could be called Achuzah because it was divided between Yehuda and Yamin, uh, whereas Rabbi Yehuda held sorry, sorry Tanakama held that Yerushalayim can't be called Achuzah. So it can't get Nagaim because it wasn't divided. Rabbi Yudah held it was divided between the um, among the tribes, so it could get Nagaim. Um, but the end of the line is right: is that um, there's a version in which Rabbi Yudah says that the Beit Hamikdash is the only place which can't get Nagaim, which we pointed out um, like last week can be ironic because there's a Midrash Agadah which treats all of Nagei Batim as a as a metaphor for the destruction of the Beit Hamikdash. And the end of the Gemara says that every place other than a, uh, that all shuls, all right, all publicly sanctified spaces are exempt from uh, nigei batim. Okay, that is the end of the shir. Um, I'm happy to take questions, uh, or alternatively, I'm happy to take feedback, uh, both about whether 